Hey, everybody. Welcome to the No Film School podcast for the week of September 17th, 2022. I am Charles Hain. I am a filmmaker and podcast host, and I'm recovering from my Omicron vaccine, so I'm at like half power this week. Uh, I'm here with George Edelman, editor-in-chief of No Film School. Hello. I'm here with Todd Blankenship, filmmaker of Texas. <laughs> hey, how's it going? Uh, this week, we're going to be talking about the passing of a giant that has affected us more than probably anyone else in the 20th century. And uh, it's not Elizabeth, because who cares about the monarchy? It's Jean-Luc Godard. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, we should abolish the monarchy. I mean, they should. We don't have one in America. But um, Omicron just... Charles coming in hot. <laughs> oh, my God. I've been so hot on the Queen all week. People keep on being like, but the tourism. And I'm like, are you kidding me? People would go see that fucking palace, whether or not you officially have a queen or a king. Fuck that noise. Queen like, Twitter was lit, to use yeah. the parlance of our times. It was, yeah, I'm not. Yeah. And then we also have a question this week. A uh, writer, has, uh, a listener has written us about independent distribution and what the landscape is looking like today. So we have a lot to talk about with that, but let's kick off with Jean-Luc Godard first. Jean-Luc Godard passed away by assisted suicide on September 13th, 2022. He, he didn't release an official statement, but had said something akin to, you know, uh, I was no longer living life on the terms that I wanted to live it. And so I chose to end it. Uh, lived in Switzerland, where assisted suicide is illegal and highly regulated, but you know, chose the legal option to go out on his terms. Most of his career was very clearly about his terms, or when <laughs> terms were forced on him, malicious compliance. There's that great Reddit thread, malicious compliance, which is like, you're if you're going to force this thing on me, I'm going to do it, and I'm going to follow the rules, but I'm going to do it in a way that says "fuck you," and. Um, uh, Jean-Luc Godard was definitely a malicious compliance type, which we'll get to when we talk a little bit about, uh, more about Godard in a bit. But I just wanted to talk about, you know, if you are interested in independent cinema, if you are interested in thinking about cinema in a new and critical way and finding ways to tell stories that are fresh, at some point or another, you have to engage with the French New Wave and Jean-Luc Godard in specific, because there's like a cut in a Jean-Luc Godard movie and it cuts to a title for card that's like, you could basically call everyone in this movie a child of Coca-Cola, is more or less what the title card says. I don't remember it verbatim, <laughs> but it's a great, you know, it's a great title card. And, you know, there's a certain way, especially you can say about like the new Hollywood 70s and a whole generation of filmmakers in the 80s, that you could basically just call them all the children of Godard. And, you know, there's a freshness and a freedom and a joy and a malicious compliance in Godard that like is fascinating and wonderful. And like opened my eyes to a lot of the possibilities of cinema and like is full of a deep love of genre. Like the first thing I got to say out of the way up front, if you've never seen a Godard movie, there are fun ones. Like I know you hear French 60s director and you see a picture of him and he looks serious and he's smoking that cigarette and you're like, I bet all these are boring. But like fucking Contempt is fun. Breathless is fun. Weekend is fun. There Alpha are. Alphaville is so much cool. fun. There's definitely the ones, like, there's the ones that are a chore and there's yeah. the ones that are playful and funny. Yeah, Goodbye to and, Language is a chore. Like if I hadn't yeah. watched Goodbye to Language in the theater, which was his 3D movie, which was batshit. He made a 3D movie in 2014 that played theaters and like did legit cool shit with 3D that no one else would have thought to do because he's fascinating. But there are fun ones. So go watch a fun one. I remember once Roger Ebert had something he said about Kane where he was like, you know, Kane is probably the best movie ever made, but it's also a lot of fun. And how lucky are we that our best movie is also a good time? And it's like, 
Jean-Luc Godard is a fascinating filmmaker who made stuff that was like the joy of cinema was one of the things the movies were about. And so like there is fun there. It is not all boring. There are some really glacially boring ones. And if you started with a glacially boring one, I'm sorry. That's like (laughs) not a good introduction to someone who's so interesting, but there's like something there. And then, you know, he made his first movie for 70 grand, which is like very low budget when you're shooting 35 millimeter film. He famously got a job at a TV studio that his mom hooked him up with and he stole from the TV studio and went to jail in 52. Like, you know, there's a lot of famous Jean-Luc Godard being a young rebel stories that like everybody else has been sort of imitating ever since in a lot of ways. Like, you know, that filmmaker character in Entourage who like donated blood to make his movie. Like in some ways that character is a riff on all of the people who wanted to be Godard. So I think it's really interesting. I also think there's like a lot of, I'm going to tell a couple of Godard stories. I had a big Godard thing. I even wrote a feature script about Godard. If anybody out there is a fellow Godard head and wants to finance its making for 70 grand, we could go make it for 70 grand. Hit me up. But um, <laughs> I've got a great actor. To it play has him. to be that number. Right. Yeah, I mean, we got it in honor, right? Although there's been inflation, so we'll use an inflation calculator and we'll see what 70 grand and 59 is today. It's probably like a million dollars, let's be real. Regardless, there's a great story I really like about Qatar, and I'm going to tell it because I'm going to tell a couple contempt stories. And I'm going to tell them because one, I enjoy malicious compliance. And two, it's, a, it's an interesting technical thing about filmmaking that he also fell victim to. And I like to tell it to my students because it's about Even Godard, who like some people would call a god of cinema, is a human being and had all the frailties of another, of every other director. So first story about Godard. He's making contempts. He is an American producer who's kind of a blowhard. And the American producer has cut a deal with Richard Bardo, the star, which includes a certain amount of nudity. Like nudity is in the contract, which is very common. Like it's very like, okay, you are going to be naked for this many minutes of screen time is part of the deal. And the way they used to do it in a 50s movie was they assumed, all right, well, teenage boys are only going to the movie to see Bridget Barnett naked. So we are going to slowly get her more and more naked as the movie goes on so that they stay and they actually watch the whole movie. And then towards the end of the movie, she's finally fully naked is the thing. Very male gaze, very like exploitative, very like a certain aspect of cinema. If you watch Contempt, there's an opening title shot. And then the second shot of the movie is a full body naked shot of Bridget Bardot. And then the camera dollies in and then dollies all the way down her body and dollies all the way back up her body. And it's basically malicious compliance. It's basically Godard saying, okay, if this is what you came here for, here it is. You came here for your naked Bardot. You get your naked Bardot. Now I'm going to go make my movie. I have fulfilled (laughs) the obligation of my contract and now we can move on. It's also a beautiful scene in which a couple are laying in bed and talking and you're getting insight into their relationship. Like it's not a, it's not just porny. It like, it works within the movie, but it is like totally malicious compliance. He also does in the scene, this crazy color grading thing where he goes through the colors of the French flag. Like when the scene starts, it's really red and then it's really white and then it's really blue. And he just does it in hard cuts with no transitions. Like, it's not like it fades from one color to another. It is like France in color grading, which I love. (laughs) But the other thing I want to talk about is so contempt Jean-Luc Godard had a cinematographer collaborator, uh, Raul Coutard, and they worked together a bunch. It's a, you know, it's one of those, it's one of the great, like you think about Scorsese and Ballhouse or Scorsese and Richardson, or honestly, these days, Scorsese and Prieto, you know, there's some other great like cinematographer collaborators out there where you're like, oh yeah, Spike and Ernest, they did all those movies together. Like they, they fed each other and they helped each other grow. Like Jean-Luc Godard and Raul Coutard are one of those big pairings. 
and the movie shot in Technicolor, and it was the first movie they did in Technicolor. And Technicolor is famous for these like super bright, saturated colors. And they didn't have the budget on that movie to do all their dailies in Technicolor. So they did what was normal at the time. They did the te- the dailies in Eastman Color. And so they were editing Eastman Color prints. Eastman Color is way less saturated. It's way browner. It's not got the pop. And Jean-Luc Guitard fell victim. Jean-Luc Godard fell victim to something that every director falls victim to. They fell in love with the temp. And this is something as filmmakers, we have to be very conscious of. As a director, you got to be really careful about falling in love with the temp, the temp grade, the temp score, the temp whatever. As a collaborator, if we got DPs listening or composers, you know, I mean, famously Kubrick fell in love with the temp score in 2001. And even though a score was written, he ended up releasing the film with the temp score, not the score that's written, which you can get on an album, but it's not the score that went to the movie. So like people fall in love with the temp. They spend six months editing. They fall in love with the temp and on contempt somewhere in the editing process, Godard, like some people consider imperfect, fell in love with the temp. Every human is frail and has faults. And there's some other faults in Jean-Luc Godard, and he never stopped smoking. He refused to get on airplanes because it was too long to go without a cigarette, which like, you know, Kubrick wouldn't fly because he was afraid because, you know, whatever. And like Jean-Luc Godard wouldn't fly because it was too long not to smoke. And I was like, of the two reasons not to fly, one of them is way cooler. <laughs> but he fell in love with the temp. And then he did a screening of the film in Eastman Keller and invited Kutar. And apparently they got in a fist fight over it. Because Qatar was like, no, I shot a Technicolor movie. We're finishing Technicolor. So now go watch the Criterion Contempt. It is Technicolor. Qatar won. But like, it's a thing you've got to be conscious of as a filmmaker is you've got to be careful in the edit room not to fall in love with the temp. So, you know, continuing our theme of we're here to educate filmmakers and to talk about lessons for filmmakers. I think that's one that we can take away from Qatar, where even Qatar was subject to falling in love with a temp aesthetic because you spend six months editing it looking all brown and Eastman colory and you forget how it could look in Technicolor, even though they'd done a bunch of tests. So, I mean, you know, those are the things that jump out to me. I think assisted suicide should be legal everywhere. I think when I, I love the way that movie looks, by the way, it, it, it just pops. Like you said, you brought up so many things that I wanted to mention, but I wanted you, I didn't want to cut you off. I wanted to let you go there about him because I think you, you, you certainly know more about him. I feel like one of the things, and I think this will segue to you, Todd, as well, that we don't always realize as filmmakers or film goers is how much the stuff we see today and love today or of the last 10, 20 years is influenced deeply by that which came before. And somebody like, I mean, no film school itself is about making movies and writing about movies and how they're done. And Jean-Luc Godard was really came out of a world of Cahiers de Cinema with Truffaut and others where the French were writing about movies. They were writing about the craft and the art of American filmmaking and American cinema in a lot of ways. And all this auteur theory came out of that. And then they like became this punk rock. Hey, we're going to fuck shit up. You know, like we're going to do it. Our, we're going to do some stuff that's totally different. And we like what's being done, but we're going to go off and, and riff. And that in turn folded into a whole new, like you said, way of making movies here. It influenced a lot of what came in the 70s. And even the filmmakers who you don't think of like, yes, we're all going to think of Tarantino, who's much later, or Scorsese, who's a little bit later. They're the obvious ones. Tarantino's production company is named after a Godard film. Tarantino today said Godard was the Bob Dylan of movies, which is an apt comparison, I think. But 
like the even in terms of reception, you know, like there's people who just love, love, love. And there's people who like, I don't like the way this guy sings. Like this doesn't sound like, you know, this doesn't sound like Elvis. <laughs> but either way, I think that the way it folds in, even a Spielberg is heavily influenced. Even the like pop iconography of cinema grows out of what they did and how they changed the form of making movies and even how they examined other movies. The idea of being movie obsessed is so commonplace now. And I think that they really originated. I mean, John Ford and Alfred Hitchcock did not like love, I mean, maybe they loved making movies, but like they didn't, they weren't like cinephiles. There was no such thing. They were like, yeah, that's my job. I direct movies. Oh, they're good. Okay, cool. I mean, <laughs> you liked it? Great. Like they were this whole idea of being like steeped in it, studying it, analyzing it, taking it apart and then deconstructing it and putting it back together in a strange way, like with jump cuts, like which is the thing Godard came on the scene doing that people are like, whoa, what is that? You know, that stuff came out of a, a, a new perspective that just opened up possibility that then, yes, filters into the mainstream. So everything we appreciate about what we do now, it's it's just all standing on those shoulders. Like it's it's a it's a progression. And I think that that you can go back and watch it and be curious to see where certain things come from. You can be influenced, the ideas in there, even beyond the format. But yeah, he's a, he's a giant of the entire industry and his influence reaches far and wide. So was, was Breathless the, the $70,000 movie you were talking about? The yeah. one that he, that's super cool. I actually didn't know that. I think of his films, that's the, the, that we were talking before we started Godard is kind of a blind spot for me it's it's weird i i, I kind of realize like i i like to watch through entire directors at a one at a time kind of thing and for whatever reason i just never really got to him i think largely a lot of the 60s i i, I need to catch up on but that's that's really cool i mean kind of going to what you were just saying george like the with breathless being that sort of an early example of that sort of mentality of, of making a movie where like, you know, you know, I, my generation grows up thinking of, you know, Linklater or whatever, uh, kind of doing a similar thing. Like that's, that's like sort of the version of that from, from then. And, and, um, I mean, that's probably the, the one of his movies that you hear of the most, like when people talk about him. So that's, that's cool that he did that kind of bare bones like that. He just popped on the scene throwing out this crazy stuff that was like sexy, different and revolutionary <laughs> like and cheap. Like, and it's that I think is a constant inspiration or reminder to people that like you can shake the ground without crazy money or access. You can do it with ideas and you can do it with inspiration. And he is a great example of that, I think, because yeah, that movie, uh, it just changed things. And then, you know, he'd go off and change things in different directions, too. But he was also famous. Wasn't his quotes like a movie needs a girl and a gun or something? A girl, Girls. a guy and a gun. And then the other yeah. famous quote was like, you need a um, beginning, a beginning middle, middle end, end, but not in that but order. Not in that order. <laughs> right. But girl, gun is kind of like <laughs> it makes you think like how he was. I don't want to say it was basic, but he wasn't like, oh, movies have to be 
like subversive and insane to work. He was kind of like, there's some bare bones stuff that like you can play with on a simple level. And I feel like those, those truisms, those quotes are like, those probably are like on the wall above whatever Quentin Tarantino writes on. To be honest, like, I think those are like in his, whatever he does, those are the rules he has to follow first and foremost. Discover why critics are calling Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes the best film of the franchise. What a wonderful day! It's a jaw-dropping spectacle that demands to be seen on the biggest screen possible. I need to go. Hang on. It is our time. Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes. Now playing only in theaters. Rated PG-13. Some material may be inappropriate for children under 13. Have you ever wanted to watch something and it's just not available in your region? Have you ever been curious what UK Netflix or maybe some other country's version of some of the popular streamers has available that your local one doesn't? Well, there's something called NordVPN. And by using NordVPN, with the click of a button, you can access all kinds of content that maybe you didn't even know existed. With 5,000 plus server options, no show is out of your reach. So use my link, nordvpn.com forward slash nofilmschool, and you can receive a huge discount on a two-year plan plus one free month. We all love to binge shows, but privacy is a big deal too. NordVPN keeps your information encrypted so you never have to worry about your IP or location getting out. We all love watching and streaming all these shows, but we also care about our privacy, and NordVPN keeps your information encrypted so you never have to worry about your IP or location getting out. And they've also doubled down on keeping you safe with their new threat protection feature. So say goodbye to intrusive website ads and malware. Even if you download an infected file, threat protection will kick in and delete it before it makes a mess of your computer or whatever device you're using. So don't forget that there is actually no risk to you by trying this because there's a 30-day money-back guarantee. So give it a try. If you like it, great. If you don't, you get a full refund and you can pretend the whole thing never happened. Check out my link, nordvpn.com forward slash nofilmschool to get your subscription started today. So if I'm someone listening and I'm also, you know, kicking myself for not being a a good little uh, film lover and not having seen enough Godard, (laughs) um, what, give me, give me like... Give me like five that are just, you got to watch that. Well, I mean, Contempt, you got to start at Contempt. Okay. It's so good. Alphaville is his sci-fi, but it's set in a future Paris, but like, it's like, it's like the birth of lo-fi sci-fi. Like any movie that you've seen in the last 50 years where it's like, it's sci-fi, but they just did it with stuff they could buy at the hardware store and it still worked anyway. (laughs) It's all a child of Alphaville, which is literally just like shooting carefully in the right neighborhoods in Paris and very simple props. And it works as a future. So Alphaville rules weekends. There was a great Twitter quote on weekends where somebody was like, yeah, my film teacher showed us weekend and all the students were like, this is so unrealistic. And the film professor apparently responded, all of you are way more likely to be kidnapped by revolutionaries, which is what happens in the film than you are to blow up a death star. So stop complaining. (laughs) And, I really liked that. 
That's great. Weekend is like aggressively political too, like sociopolitical. It's good. Yeah. It, it, it's like more of some of more of his ideas. Like I think Alphaville's cool because like when I saw it, I think I saw it in high school actually in a film class, but it definitely was like a, another, oh, you can do so much. Like you can be creative and do so much. Like you don't need like, cause like you said, he was just careful and he created a future world with that specificity thx1138 is probably huge oh, absolutely hugely like it was just a george lucas style film was like i'll do that you know there's just it's just the influences just run wild but i think um yeah i mean masculine I think those- feminine which will change your thoughts about coverage forever the way they cover in masculine feminine or band of outsiders is so, How worth so? It. I, i'm actually really curious because i like to know what i'm looking for how, I mean, the there's different? just a straight up scene where the entire scene is covered on the back of two people's heads and it works. Oh, hell yeah. And you're I like, you would think it would seem ridiculous. You would think it would seem stupid. And it's this entire dialogue scene where you're just staring at the back of their heads and you to- and you totally are like, holy shit, that works. Yeah, Masculine Feminine is great. And I would, I would wrap with two or three things I know about her, which is like, it's, it's a little less, it doesn't always make the top 10 lists, but it was the first one I ever saw. And I think because it had been re-released at like when I was 16 or whatever. So it was getting a lot of press at the time. And like two or three things I know about her. I watched that and I was like, what the fuck? You mean you can just do whatever the fuck you want? Mm. Like, mm. He he really, I was just going to say, I feel like he's another, like the power of conviction. Like I will do this and I will make it work. I will break the rule. The rules were made to be broken and it's going to work. And it makes you think like we, we often preach like know the rules before you break them kind of thing. But I think it's super attractive to the person who wants to become a filmmaker in the first place to think about rules that should be, you know what I mean? Like it's just go out there and break the rules, make it weird. Like, <laughs> and, and like that will draw people's attention. I think it would be great for people to really dig into that because now it is very hard to get attention with your movie, with anything you make. Because there's so much. And there's so what not, can you there's, do? There's not really a whole lot of filmmakers that you would apply that sort of, I don't know, you wouldn't really say that they're they're thinking that far outside of the box. Like there's there's some, but I was trying to think like who would I, based on what you're saying, like who's a more modern up and coming filmmaker who's just starting out that I would sort of think is going to have a similar impact on the industry. But, you know, going back to what you're saying before about, you know, like Hitchcock didn't have like, Hitchcockian influences in his movies. Yeah, uh, right. you know, like it's it's kind of funny. Like, I think that's such a a key part of just making sure to go back and watch all the the greats because it's just kind of like there's so many things that you realize like oh that came from here, and this has been done forever. And um, yeah, I mean it's it's kind of weird how I feel like in a lot of ways we've reached this weird place where like all these ideas mixed together for so long that now everything kind of just feels samey at times. Yeah. No, I, I think you're, I think you're right about something there. I think that, you know, I was going to say, I kind of feel like he always is, is, he always comes up in this kind of context, but I feel like PTA is one of the only ones, even though he's not up and coming, he's super established. He still does try to break little rules here and there. 
And there were things about even licorice pizza where I was like, yeah, a lot of people are not going to like this because it's not going to fall. Like it's going to, it does things with pacing and with like, it's not, it's not as punk rock as a Godard sixties movie, but there are things about it where it's just like, he's just doing stuff. That's a little strange with how he's telling the story and what it's about and where it goes and where, like, he's not playing the narrative rules. Like well, he's and, playing his and just rules. randomly deciding he's going to DP his stuff now, you know, like, like that, yeah. that was a, to, for me, that was kind of like, whoa, that was unexpected. And it, to me, that just shows he's like sort of uh, finding new ways to engage with, with the storytelling that he's doing, which yeah. is cool. I mean, he is the king of like the privilege. Like as Charles says, like his story doesn't happen. Like nobody gets to have that, that fan that he lives the filmmaker fantasy, like of how he came in, of what he gets to do, yeah. of all of it. Yeah, but, for sure. but there is a very like a spirit of, so I guess I would say for film goers, I feel like from the perspective of us attending movies that we think about like Top Gun Maverick was like awesome. Right. But, they're like licorice. Pe- they're, we should make room, I think, a big corral that includes like value that this thing like just because it was different doesn't mean it was bad. You know, just because it did things in a way that you're not accustomed to doesn't mean it did something wrong. Because I do think we're a little bit in the cinema world. There's a mindset that's kind of the sameness you're talking about. I think part of it comes from the idea that like, well, we know what is supposed to be and it's supposed to be this way. And if it's not this way, and it's not just the gatekeepers who do this, it's audiences too. We're like, well, it was supposed to be like this. And instead it dragged for a while. It's like, sometimes that's okay. It was supposed to drag. Maybe that was part of the experience you were being given. So I think we have to kind of create room and space for that. Like we're going to let someone give us an experience that is different and it doesn't mean it's wrong, you know? Yeah, I think that's definitely a thing that I, I hear come up quite often is just like, feedback on movies where it's like well clearly the the intention was that so you just didn't like the result right. you know but maybe it, you didn't like it but the, <laughs> but yeah like that sort of like people didn't like it so it's bad is a weird thing like uh i mean sore subject perhaps but like the last jedi like there was kind of like a i mean we're gonna do stuff a little different you might not like it <laughs> like right. star wars fans like Well, no, and what's so funny is, like, when I've gotten into arguments with The Last Jedi with people, which hasn't happened that often, but, like, people always resort to sort of a, like, but there's things in that movie that are just wrong. And, (laughs) like, the thing for me is, like, it's cinema. There's not a law body. Do you know what I mean? Like, like, there's not, we don't have an ecumenical council of cinema that is, like, Mm -hmm. if Billy Wilder wouldn't have done it, we are not allowed to do it. Like, Mm-hmm. You know, we we have the freedom to do wild ass, crazy, weird shit. And it, I, I mean, I will say this: Godard has made teaching film harder. I mean, I was born <laughs> twenty years after Breathless, but like, you know, one thing I've noticed teaching film for fifteen years now is that students always want me to give them. Well, is it right to do that or wrong to do that? It comes uh, up all the time. Yeah. Of like, you know, as part of your development process, you're trying to find your own voice, and part of that, you're looking for other people to give you definitive answers. And, you know, one of my most used phrases as a teacher is like, well, it depends on what you're trying to pull off. You know, it mm. depends on what your goal is or what you're trying to accomplish. Like, you know, I teach you what a jump cut is because you might want to do jump cuts. And what's mm. so interesting to me is looking at like the way aesthetic trends change over time. Where like in the 50s, if you turned in dailies that had lens flare, you'd get fired. 
And then, (laughs) like, it was just not allowed. Like, it was considered a mistake. Like, there were ways to fix it. There were ways to flag your lens. And you were incompetent. And then Easy Rider came out. And everybody was like, oh, lens flares are cool. And then, you know, and it's like. Now it's tired. (laughs) Oh, my gosh. Now now we buy plugins so we can make sure that they show up. Yeah. And and that we can have infinite post control. I mean, I'll admit, Noel Light Factory has been well worth the money and has been well used in my career. I love No Light Factory, which is like, is there a better plug-in for flares right now? That's still the one, right? Uh, I mean, you know, it's it's a good one. There's there's the video co-pilot one, which a lot of people use. But honestly, I I dig the one in, just in, in Resolve these days. Oh, yeah. That one is also slick as hell. No, yeah. they're great. So like, you know, it is, Godar is really one of those people that like film had gotten a little ossified. And mm. we, we had sort of entered a phase of like, well, we figured out what these rules are. And we have structures for what these rules can be. And then Gadar was like, fuck that. And <laughs> um, let's burn it all down. And like, you know, living in that universe, like there's Gadar all over the Wolf of Wall Street. Like it's oh, just yeah. there. Mm. Oh, yeah. No, Scorsese loves all that stuff and always has. And like he, he breaks rules too. He always has. I think that there's something like you said about it makes it hard to teach film. It makes it hard on every level because I remember... A couple quick anecdotes. I remember something I did in high school or like right after, like a little video project with friends kind of thing that many of us have done those things. And someone saw it and the criticism was like, you broke the, you know, you broke the the over the shoulder of the 90 degree. You jumped the line, yeah. Right, you jumped the line. And I was like, I was like, who cares, man? Like the dart jumps the line, you know, like I was like, who cares about the line? You know, like, like, and it wasn't that I did it on purpose. It was just that I was like thumbing. I was like, why should I care? Like, why do I care about that? Like, and, and I think that that was slight, not slight, that was arrogance, but the same thing, like you would go into a meeting sometimes and say like, it's going to be you know, irreverent. It's going to be funny, but it's going to be dark. It's going to be, you know, the Tarantino vibe or whatever. And someone would be like, nah, you can't do that because you're not Tarantino. Like, and you, or you can't, you know, you can't be irreverent. You have to play by the rules first or things like that. I think that there is so much resistance to breaking rules and being different and get in the, the, the whole thing is like, get in the door first make a living, you know, and then fine. Maybe if you want to play around and do whatever, but like, I don't know. It makes, it certainly makes it hard to be innovative. I mean, that's definitely why I also want to survive. That's why I got out of film school was just like, I, I couldn't stand the, you know, basically things like jumping the line or, uh, you know, just pontificating about the rule of third, like things like that, where it's just like, you know, you can't just, watch something and be like, does this feel right? Does it, does it just feel like someone's trying to do something? That's, that's all that it should be, you know, there shouldn't be rules about it. And, and if it, it, you know, a lot of the time jumping the line feels weird, it feels like a bad cut, but sometimes it doesn't. And so just, you know, shut the hell up, Jerry. I'm, I'm doing what I want to (laughs) do. Yes. Jerry. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I could see how it makes it harder to teach for sure because you can't say never. You can't say sometimes. You can say, does it work or not? Does it work for you? Does it work in a test audience? Do you care? You know, well, yeah, I like, mean, I all, the, imagine- all you got to do is like <laughs> you explain the rule and then you show where filmmakers broke it, you know? And, right. and that's the thing is just, like a lot of that stuff, 
is is you know where where the rules get broken is where the good shit happens and i'm sure i, I want to take charles's classes i bet he does i bet he does a <laughs> badass job of all this i mean i try i like to show especially when i'm talking about the line like if you watch unforgiven there are amazing scenes in Unforgiven where he just cuts over the line every single shot and does not care. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but I guarantee you, ninety nine. I wonder percent if of he didn't audience... even know. Do you think he even knew? Oh, cared? I'm sure he knew. But you know, you once you really understand how the line works, you know when you can get away with it and when you can't. Yeah, the line is really only the problem with most rules. It's the same reason Noam Chomsky has that great article about why you never see Noam Chomsky on the news. I mean, there's lots of reasons why you should never see Noam Chomsky on the news, but his whole thing is he's like, all the news wants is simple sound bites. And I don't believe that simple sound bites often have much truth in them. And I try and give my answers with context and nuance. And the problem is, is like, the line is really important for cutting to a close up where the background is wildly out of focus. It can be very disorienting to like jump across the line where you're cutting into a close up. Mm. But if it's a bunch of medium shots or wide shots, you can jump over. Or if there's anything in the frame that helps the audience orient, if there's a big barn in the background and everybody can see it, you can be all, wherever you want over the line. The line is yeah. just really a thing when you're on like a 150 millimeter lens and the background is all blurred, then the audience can really tell and get disoriented if you're over the line. But that nuance takes longer to say than there's a line in the scene. And if you cut over it, the audience <laughs> will be disoriented like children. And you're like, it's tough. Not that there's like, you know, film news tonight where people have to get in and give sound bites on film news. But, you know, it's that it's that tricky thing. So whenever I teach the line, I, I do always like to show a couple scenes from Unforgiven because, yeah, I mean, they're just all over the map with the line on that one. And like there are wildly unmotivated backlights at night on the rain scene. And, you know, when you look at it, it totally works. And you're like, there wouldn't be lights there. It's the old west, but you need to see the rain. So there's a light over there and it's fine. It just works. And, uh, you know, most rules are guides, but there's a mm -hmm. hunger. I think we all have the hunger for rules. I mean, I, I'm going to, I'm going to go out a limb and I say, I bet at certain points in his life, Gadar had the hungry for rules and structure. No one that obsessed with breaking rules. Isn't also mm -hmm. fascinated by them. I mean, he wrote about them. He yeah. created some. He created the ones that like, <laughs> you know, like, like nobody was more of a, like, nobody founded the rules more than the directors that they were elevating that were like, these guys are geniuses because they've created these forms that are consistent across all their movies, no matter what their movies are about, you know, like, or like who's in them or they're like, they've created something. And then they were like, now we smash it. You know, yeah. I mean, there wouldn't be euphoria without Godard. And we know this because the film that Sam Levinson made before getting Euphoria made, Assassination Nation, used a typeface in its trailer, the typeface, Kadar. And it's a typeface that came out a couple of years ago. It's for free download. You could go look for it online if you want to do Kadar titles yourself. And it's inspired, you know, all of the Kadar titles in the 60s were hand-drawn because it was the 60s and there weren't computers. And so they were hand-drawn titles. So someone made a typeface that sort of mimics that Kadar title look. And then those titles were in Assassination Nation, which led us to Euphoria, which I think has a lot of Godard in it. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. 
got your happy price, price line. All right. From there, let's move on to our question. We've got a great question this week. I really enjoyed it. It's like the kind of question, you know, I like a good question where I'm like, oh yeah, we're the people to answer this. So Keenan, longtime reader, first time contactor is working as a post coordinator on an independent doc and they're looking to get distributed on iTunes and Amazon, but there's really nothing legit out there. Quiver's dead are there, as were most of the others from 10 years ago. There only seems to be one left, walla.la, but they're not replying to my emails, and I'm wondering if you've ever heard of them. Are there any flat fee distributors that No Film School can recommend for iTunes and Amazon? So let's talk about a couple of issues here. So what this, what Keenan's specifically talking about is the very low end of self-distribution. So in your dream scenario, your film gets picked up with a bigger distributor. And iTunes is distributor only. You cannot get your film on iTunes if you're not going through a, a distributor that's registered with iTunes. It's not like YouTube where you can just put up whatever you want. If you want to be in iTunes, which is still a source of VOD revenue, you want to make sure you are getting up through a distributor to get on iTunes. However, the last time I went through this process was 2019, right before the pandemic, where a couple were still in business. I think Quiver was still hanging on. And I talked to a bunch of friends, including a specialist in the space, like an indie distribution consultant. And I said, is the $1,000 I'm going to pay Quiver worth it for iTunes? And he said, honestly, iTunes traffic is down so low so few people buy movies on iTunes anymore that it could take five years for you to see that $1,000 back on iTunes. And that was when Quiver was still in business. And Quiver and like Walla.la are what we call flat fee distributors. So you get if you get in with a bigger distributor, like my feature was with Synetic. Synetic takes a cut of things. They make sure you're like above a certain minimum. So your film gets to a certain minimum. And then after that, they're taking a percentage. So, you know, Synetic got us on VOD, which is like uh, the video on your cable box, which was like a huge thing for us. We got a lot of revenue from like movies on demand on people's cable boxes, but it also got us in Amazon and iTunes and a bunch of other places. And even with Synetic placing us there, we still didn't get a lot of iTunes revenue. It's useful, but it's not huge. The flat fee distributors like Quiver, you paid them a thousand bucks and they got your movie on iTunes provided. I think that they like would review your movie. So like if it was just 90 minutes of your toes, they wouldn't distribute it even if you gave the thousand. But like, if you were a movie, and like, we all know what we mean when we say that, right? Like, if you were a movie, <laughs> if you were like real, you might have been bad or boring, but you were like a movie, they would put you on iTunes. But unsurprisingly, it turned out that that was not enough of a business model and Quiver did not survive because a thousand dollars was probably too cheap for them, honestly, to like keep the relationship going. And I have to say, Walla.la has not been on my radar. No one I know has used them. And worse than that, in my mind, their number one job is to, like, they are incentivized to respond to your emails before they get your money. If you haven't given them money yet and they're not responding to your emails, you know they're not going to respond to your emails once they get your money. Because <laughs> that's a really good point. <laughs> yeah. So if, if there's someone that I want to give money to and they don't respond to my emails, I just assume that like, I would, I would just immediately write off Walla if you emailed them and they didn't get back to you. Like, cause they should want your thousand dollars. I imagine what'll happen when they don't need your money anymore. Exactly. You'll never hear from them again. Yeah. So, and it's not a good sign that they'll have the follow through to get it up on iTunes. Amazon is a different animal. Amazon, for a long time, you could just 
put your work on Amazon. Like, you know, there was some vetting, like you had to like, it was, it was harder than getting your movie on YouTube. You had to like get it in very specific formats and you had to do subtitles and you had to do title cards and you had to do like, you had to do a lot of work, but like you could just get your movie on Amazon. Like it was just like, oh, and then like you're in prime, like everybody else. Like if someone has the Amazon app on their TV, they can just navigate to your movie and watch it on their laptop. Like it was just in Amazon normally, which was a big deal for a lot of people. And a lot of people got a lot of revenue from that until it's still fine for narrative. But Amazon two or three years ago stopped doing it for documentary. Anybody want to guess why? Mm, I don't Something know. made money that they wanted to have made that money. No crazy political bullshit. Oh, so <laughs> people were putting up like far right wing Nazi documentaries, anti-vax documentaries. Oh, okay. like, uh, yeah. So it became and Amazon was like, you know what? We're a business. We have plenty of money. We don't need the money we're getting out of these prime documentaries. They are not going to be worth because then the argument would be there'd be some anti-vax thing. And then there'd be some petition about like this anti-vax thing shouldn't be on Amazon prime. Amazon prime is supporting it. You know, it became controversial and they were like, Nope, we will do narrative. We will not do doc. So if you've gone out and, and you've this is why feature, we can't have nice things. <laughs> exactly. This is like, it, it was the perfect example of if you guys wouldn't be assholes, then people who like passionately Keenan, like passion, it sounds like is excited about this doc and wants to get it to their audience would be able to get it up. I'm assuming Keenan's not an ideologue with like, you know, a, a passionate anti South Dakota documentary. That's like, we should just set South Dakota on fire. I'm assuming Keenan's cool because Keenan's a listener. And I assume all our listeners are cool. But even if Keenan has like an anti South Dakota, we should just set the state on fire doc. No matter what Keenan can't get that doc on Amazon anymore because it's a documentary, not a fiction. But if Keenan would just go out and make a let's burn South Dakota to the ground documentary, but as a feature narrative telling the story of people trying to set South Dakota on fire, Keenan could put that on Amazon. So I have to say for an independent doc right now, it's a bad time. You really have to try and get in with a traditional synetic or similar type distributor to get your independent doc screened or you have to have your own platform and website. And that really boils down to what your market is. So if your market mm. is the right market, I know people who are still making money selling Blu-rays and DVDs, but all those people who are selling Blu-rays and DVDs have an audience that skews older. Like if you have a film where your audience is going to be like 45 and older or like, you know, country music fans or stuff like that. I have a buddy who works at a country music label who was still selling a lot of CDs as recently as a year or two ago, because like, the country music audience still listens to CDs. They haven't moved on to title like everybody else. So if you have that audience that will still have a lot of physical media consumption, you can build a website and try and market it and try and get revenue that way. If your audience skews younger, and if it's not in an app on their Roku or on their computer, they're never going to see it. You're really stuck in a bind where it's about trying to get in front of a distributor, which means trying to get into one of the festivals where distributors pay attention and like, you know, I have friends who like sold their docs out of slam dance. Like it's doable. You can try and get into those festivals and, and that's your move. And it sucks because five years ago you had moves. You could get it on Amazon because they allowed docs up. You could use quiver to get it on iTunes. You could do self-distribution through that tug platform and get it screenings going with local audiences of, of people interested. But like right now, in this moment, I think there's going to be change. I think there'll be a refresh. And if any listeners are out there are screaming in their car and they're like, but wait a minute, 
what about this thing that you haven't heard about? Like, I'm desperate to know. I want to know what the new fucking thing is. But like, from my paying attention to the industry and talking to my friends in the space, like, it's a bad time for indie docs right now. And that is our segment called What a Bummer. Sorry, that was a joke. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, I, I was going to say, I think it's just really interesting that it's about, that part of it is about misinformation. Because I, you know, so much of what YouTube feels like it's done that's bad is just give people a place to put whatever crazy thing they think and other people to find it and say that's proof of the crazy thing. <laughs> so I'm sort of glad at least that there is some effort to say like, yeah, let's not do that anymore. <laughs> you know, like, I mean, that's YouTube is fine. It's a whole different model. But with Amazon just being like, it makes something, it's an official documentary about why, you know, some insane like QAnon or whatever. No, it's not. <laughs> but the, we did a lot of stories for a while on No Film School about these models dying and just taking money from filmmakers like Distribber was one of them. A lot of these aggregators and stuff. But I hate to say that I, I hate it, that it's true. It is a bummer. But the even when you have, like I had a similar thing with Gravitas that you had with, I forgot what the name of yours was, Charles, but where it was a real distributor, uh, real in the sense that it was like they were going to put it on cable and do all of that and they would take a cut of whatever comes in. But the fact that they're getting a cut of whatever comes in creates some motivation, right? Like you said earlier about the email, if, if you're giving them your money and they're not emailing you back, it's like, well, they're motivated. They're going to try to make money on this thing. And they continue to occasionally make money and send small checks, you know, because there is an existence for like, yeah, they, there's a market and they're, that's what they do. But yeah, the, the models on the bottom tier are, are a problem. It's a struggle. Yeah, that's, that's interesting because I have noticed like for, for a long time there was, there was a bunch of just really weird stuff that you could find on, on Prime. And like there was like a show where it was like, they made it for dogs um, to watch, like literally for your dog to sit and watch. And like, <laughs> and it was just like a sitcom, but the dogs were just like walking around the house, but they put like little interstitial music and laugh tracks and stuff. <laughs> and I was just like, I'd watch that. I, I remember thinking like, oh, I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna put up some weird stuff on, on Amazon. <laughs> but uh, yeah, apparently you can't anymore. Dang it. Dang it. My, my uh, dog. I mean, show. on the other hand, there are still ways you can create audiences and connect with them on these other platforms that don't involve distributors and cut out that piece of the puzzle, but it's a whole other business model. Yeah, that's 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 a thing I've never that's a road I've never gone down is trying to secure my own distribution for something. I feel like it it would just it just seems like it would feel so like Charles, you have a, a few things out there, right? That that can be watched on Prime and things, right? Yeah, I've got three or four things on Prime, and I've got, yeah, mostly on Prime at this point, some things on VOD and uh, iTunes. Is that, and, and you said, how did you say you, you did that? Like, was it just like One a, was Synetic, uh, okay. one was Gravitas, and then my web series, I just put it on Prime, because you could just do that. So I was like, fuck it, I'll just put it on Prime. And in, in y'all's, both of y'all, your experience, is it, is it worth doing that? Like, do you, do you? get views from that sort of stuff or is it negligible? Like, does it make it feel like it was all a worthwhile experience or do you wish you had found some other way to distribute? Like if it gets to the point where you have to do it yourself? I mean, it's all algorithmically driven. So it really depends upon what your project is and how you can get the algorithm to 
recommend it. So like my feature film, the producers on it, Kim Diltz and JT Arbogast, like after producing that film, went into inter- independent distribution consulting because they got so good at doing independent distribution. And like they got it on all of those platforms. They worked with our distributor and then they worked really hard to activate an audience to go to those platforms because it, like the way it has to work, you have to get the first few hundred hits so that the algorithm thinks, oh, this is a thing people are actually watching. And then once it's a thing people are actually watching, they'll build a profile of who watches it, and then they'll suggest it to other people it might be interesting to. But until you've got those first few hundred or first few thousand hits that you drive, it's, I mean, I'm, I'm trying to think of like smaller projects, they probably only push it a few times to see if it works. I mean, there was a report that just came out with HBO Max that some of the shows that they cut from HBO Max had zero views. So like no one on the team drove anyone to watch the content. The algorithm never suggested the content. So if you didn't go looking for it, you never found it. So it was just there. And that was some of the stuff they cut from HBO Max, like at zero views, which is crazy to me because I'm like, shouldn't you at least go watch it when it's on the platform if you made it so you could be sure that they have like the correct version and it's not like poorly dubbed into another language and they accidentally uploaded the wrong one? Like you would think they would have at least one view, but some of the stuff had legit zero views. So I found the algorithms do a lot with what you put in. If you've done the work to build your email list and build your Facebook following and build a thing and you can say, hey, everybody, let's go watch this now. And that can like push the algorithm to then recommending it to others. Then you're in a good position. But like even Neil Gaiman was on Twitter the other day being like, guys, if you want a season two of Sandman, you've all got to finish Sandman one soon because Netflix really values people finishing a season when it decides on doing another. And that's Neil Gaiman who's like out there trying to get people to finish Sandman right now so that the algorithm will reward it. And it's like, man, you're Neil Gaiman. You should probably just get like four seasons of Sandman on principle, but I guess not. So it, you know, I've the, the thing I've had that did the best on those platforms, I had a producing team that built an audience outside of those platforms and then drove that audience to those platforms, which then juiced the algorithm such that the algorithm would suggest it to other people. Hmm. Okay. I've always wondered, like, if, if, uh, so, I mean, in a, in a sense, it's almost like playing the social media game. And if you can get, like, you almost have to sort of be your own marketing department for your own movie, even after it's on a streaming platform. Forever and ever. I, and ever I'll tell and you, ever. like, for us, for us, uh, for my experience, because it wasn't self distributed, but there was this big thing about advertising. And they were like, we're not going to put anything into that. You know, we're not going to, the distributor is not going to do that. So we debated it and we actually paid someone quite a bit to do some marketing with us that I think was pretty pointless (laughs) (laughs) because it was like, it was like a lot to me, to us, but I don't think it was like the kind of money you have to spend to market a movie legit to cut through the noise is way beyond anything the movie costs itself. So it wasn't reasonable and anything we spent was kind of like, you know, it was, it wasn't going to move the needle. I don't know. Things have changed a lot since then. Things are constantly changing, but that whole being your own social media and doing all of that stuff, like, yeah. you And even then, even if you do it all, like we had, we did Reddit AMA with the guys who were the leads. We did, like, we did so many things, but it's such a, man, it is not, it's harder now <laughs> than it was then. And it's, I don't know. It's tough. So you sound really fired up about it, George. 
<laughs> I mean, I just think that's the hardest. Like, I just, I genuinely think that's the hardest thing. Cutting through the noise. And that's why so much money is spent in advertising for movies and like marketing a movie once it's done. And why, going back to a story we were covering a lot on the pod and just in general, which with, with Warner Brothers Discovery and stuff and Batgirl and all that, is like they canned those things before they did that stuff. They made those big marketing pushes. That is a huge component. And it's a different scale, obviously, than what we're talking about right now. But just having something live on a platform for us, like, yeah, every once in a while, I will see the movie I made gets like a couple new Facebook <laughs> likes and and like I'll see like a couple, like some small amount of money will come in. But like, it's not like people find it. I don't know how. There's so much out there. Right. Like, but they find it and see it, I guess. But that just it. Yeah. I mean, it's there's so much. There's so mm. much. All righty, folks. So, yeah, if if Walla is not returning your emails, it is time to go the traditional festival route and try and work with a more established distributor as much as that might not seem exciting on an indie doc level. That's your move at the moment. All right. I am on the internet at charleshane.com and charleshane on YouTube and charleshane on Twitter and all of those places creating content for the interwebs. I'm Todd Blankenship. You can find me on YouTube, Instagram, and TikTok at Am I a Filmmaker? TikTok? TikTok. Sorry, sorry. Wow. Should I? I shouldn't have said that, should I? This is, no, it's exciting. <laughs> I think it's cool. I think it means we're moving up in the world. Uh, <laughs> or I should I think, say, we're, we, like someone here is advancing I think my last forward. post has like six views, so let's not get carried away. <laughs> the future <laughs> of content is TikTok. I'm George Edelman, editor-in-chief at No Film School. You can find everything we talked about today and more at nofilmschool.com. Please like, rate, and subscribe to this podcast. Send us your questions. The one today was great. Or send us your comments or just your thoughts and feedback. We like to hear from everyone and kind of crowdsource information about this industry and this craft. Yeah, check us out on Twitter and Facebook. And I do think there's a No Film School TikTok, but it has less going on than Todd's. <laughs> uh, and you can find me on Twitter and Instagram and other similar places. Not TikTok, though. Thanks so much for listening.